We are reading from the book of? Yes, we are indeed. Philippians chapter 3, Pew Bibles, page 955. It would be helpful if you have it out and open. Philippians 3, page 955. We'll be reading verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Paul says this, not that I have already obtained this, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, which is something he just mentioned, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are of mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. I think that if Paul were around today, he would be a big fan of Sports Center. I think he would love a Sports Center. I think he would be a big fan of the Olympics. I think that yesterday he would have been glued to the television for seven hours to watch the Michigan Illinois game. I think he would have loved that. He loved imagery of athletics, it's woven through his letters. And he's not the only one. In the culture of that day, athletics were just as big as they are now. Romans would come in, they'd build a city, it would have very important things like a temple, it would have a theater, and it would have a stadium. Archaeologists all over the place are finding these Roman stadiums, places to play, places where athletes would compete against each other. And so we see these imagery, these signs of this image come out in Paul all the time. Today we have it. This idea of straining forward toward what is ahead and forgetting what is behind, to go for the prize. All language of long-distance running. We can imagine Paul in his cell in Rome. I'm going to go with Rome. N.T. Wright, as you read, goes with Ephesus. I'm going with Rome. I think I was in Rome. He's in his cell in Rome. We can arm wrestle about that when Tom Wright comes to visit. But... um, (laughs) 
He's in his cell in Rome, and you can imagine, just as people around here talk about sports, you can imagine that outside of wherever he's being kept, they're talking about athletics. They're talking about who they like in this game, and you could have seen this guy. This guy was amazing. Oh, man, my father used to compete with that guy. All around him, this talk of athletics and straining toward the prize, and everybody knew who had won the big prizes. Just like now, we all know who wins the big prizes. Who won the World Series this year? Okay. Giants, right? Think of even what we name our sports teams, like the Giants, right? It's not like, you know, the weak people. It's like the Giants won the World Series, right? These are the things we know, that they're common. People who have success, we put up images of athletes, we know them. Who won the Tour de France this year? Kind of. Yes, Contador. He won and then it was stripped away from him because he is a cheetah. <laughs> Karma for Contador. We all know these things. We know who succeeds. We know who wins the prizes in our culture. It was the same thing here. They know who won the prizes. They know who, what it took to win the prize. Straining toward what is ahead, forgetting what is behind. That's how you win. In fact, there was just an article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that looked at long-distance runners and the difference between good runners and elite runners. And the difference really wasn't how much they trained, it wasn't nutrition, it wasn't coaching. The difference was that the elite runners had this ability to completely shut out everything else that was going on around them and just run. In fact, these elite runners will get so consumed by the running that they will have spit and mucus smeared all over their faces at the end when they cross the finish line, and they don't know it. Yes, you're all thinking that's disgusting, and you're right. That's how consumed they are. In fact, there's this quote from this woman who's this elite distance runner, and she says, yeah, by the time you're done with a marathon, you don't look very good. Paul says, that's the kind of focus you have to have in this race. That's what I want you to be, straining toward what is ahead and forgetting what is behind. Now, why did Paul think that the Philippian church needed that kind of focus? I mean, that's pretty intense. Not to notice that you have mucus on your face, that's intense focus. Why did he think they needed that kind of focus? Because there were these people and we learned about last week, who were working really hard to distract them. There were people who said that it was Jesus and. You remember these people? They said, you, you can have Jesus, that's great, and you need to keep kosher. You can have Jesus, that's lovely, and you need to be circumcised. Paul says, look, you have got to be focused and he's pretty clear about what's going to happen to these people. Verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. He does not have high praise for these people. Now the phrase, their God is the belly, sounds a little odd. 
In other letters of Paul, he talks about what people are eating and drinking, but in this letter he hasn't. So why all of a sudden in the middle of chapter three does he come out with their God is their belly? Well, there's a bit of a play on the words here with a bit of an idea that the belly represents the whole body, that these people are only concerned with what's happening in their physical beings. Their God is their belly is an allusion to the keeping of kosher, which refers to all the rest of the Jewish laws, which refers to circumcision, which is also a mark on the body. He says they're worried about their bodies. They're worried about what they're eating. They're worried about the law. And they're taking glory in how good they are in the face of the law, which has nothing to do with salvation, as he talked about last time. Their God is their belly, he says. Their glory is in their shame. Their eyes are on earthly things. And he gives this line. But our citizenship is in heaven. That's a very interesting line for Mr. Paul to use. Because you may remember that when he first showed up in Philippi, he got into a little bit of trouble. There was a slave girl who was coming around after them and saying, these are servants of the Most High God. Do you got to listen to what they're saying? And she kept saying it over and over again, and he just got a little annoyed. And finally he said to the demon, would you just come out of her, please? Which annoyed her no owners a great deal because she was also a prophetic girl with this demon inside of her, and he, she made them quite a bit of money. So her owners had them taken before the magistrates, and this is what they said about them. This is in Acts 16. Page 901, in case you want to go there. This is what they say, Acts 16. These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. Crowd joins in attacking them. They end up getting thrown into prison. You know the story, they're singing in prison overnight. They're having a little prayer circle. The walls break down, right? There's a big earthquake. The Philippian jailer gets converted. He and his whole house will get baptized. The next morning, Acts 16, 35. When morning came, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul saying, the magistrates sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said, great. No. Paul replied, they've beaten us in public, uncondemned, Men who are Roman citizens and thrown us in prison, and now they're going to discharge us in secret? I don't think so. Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. We're so sorry about the whole whipping and the beating and here are your shoes back. (laughs) And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. So Paul, who has already taken advantage of citizenship, who knows what it means to be a Roman citizen, To be a Roman citizen meant that when the law 
was held up, you got the benefit of it. It meant that when people beated, be, beaded? <laughs> beat, thank you, English major. When people beat you without merit, without warning, without cause, you could go back and say, no, 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 you treated us wrongly, we're Roman citizens, and then they're afraid. Because what backs up a Roman citizen is Rome. All of its laws, its army, its history. When you are a Roman citizen, you are Rome. Paul has taken advantage of this citizenship. He knows the power of this citizenship. Everybody reading this letter knew that. And he says to them, uh uh, nope, no. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Over the weekend, I was in a conference in Ontario, and in order to get from Michigan to Ontario, you have to cross a border because Canada is like a whole different country. (laughs) And you have to have a passport You have to go through border patrol, people who have like no facial expressions. (laughs) And this is what they say to you. Where's home for you? And Nate, who was driving, said, we're all from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And where are you going? Hamilton, Ontario. What for? Nate pauses. A conference with a bunch of Christian colleges. And I'm sitting there thinking, how many times do these guys hear something and they think, what are you doing? I imagine that was this moment for this guy. But he looks us all over and he waves us through. And I thought, what a fascinating set of questions. Where is home for you? Where is home for you? Where is home for you? So many of you are in that in-between space when it comes to home. Some of you are getting ready to go back home for American Thanksgiving in just a couple of weeks. It's just a couple of weeks. You can do it. And you're going to find when you get home that home looks a little different. Because what happens to you when you go to college is that you grow up a little bit, hopefully a lot over four years. And you've learned things like how to manage your time and and how to hang out with friends and how to go to sleep and how to eat food and how to manage your money and all these things and you're going to go back home and in your parents' mind you are still like four. (laughs) And you're going to go back home and you're going to anticipate comfort and warmth and good food. And so many of those things are going to be there but there's also going to be this weird like wow, this doesn't feel the way it used to feel. I think I've outgrown this just a little. Where's home for you? For the people that were first reading this letter, several of them had made home in the Roman army. That's who they were. That's where they fought. That's how they retired. 
Some of them had had home be their tiny little Jewish community that met down by the river, and that was home for them. And for some of them, home was in the business world where they were able to wheel and deal. And for all of them, when this church started to pick up, one of the things that they gave up was their sense of home. Because suddenly the Roman soldiers weren't talking to this Roman soldier and the business dealings got a little bit awkward when people found out that they believed in a holy God. And the Jewish women had to realize that these Gentiles could come in and be part of their community and everybody had to give up a little bit and it felt a little less like home. And that's why throughout this letter, Paul calls them again and again and again to say, be of one mind, one purpose. Our citizenship is in heaven. Forgetting what is behind, he says, we strain for that which is ahead. And there's a reason why he wants them to forget what's behind because there are two big temptations. One is for those who kind of had it going on, who kind of knew the Jewish law, they'd known God for a long time. It's very tempting to say, well, I've, God has lots of reasons to love me. I've done lots of things right. I've been obedient to the law this whole time. I've kept kosher this whole time. All my male relatives are circumcised. We've got this thing down. This is who I am. This is a sense of where I'm from. And the other big temptation is to think, I've done way too many things wrong to be invited into that home. There's no way I could make up for everything that's in my past. Those people have so much farther head start There's no way I can get home. So Paul says, you've got to forget what is behind. Either your attempts to win God on your own merit or your whiny, self-destructive behavior that your past is unforgivable. Both of those things, he says, need to be forgotten and you need to strain for what is ahead and he says that the only way any of, this, any of us do this, the only way any of us do this is because Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own, he says. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's a powerful image, this straining toward what is ahead, forgetting what is behind. And we can imagine the distance runners with the spit and the mucus and the focus. But I want you to think about this. When I was in graduate school, I would come home on breaks and I would stay with friends who had this big, beautiful, strong golden retriever named Buckley, who was like huge. And one of my favorite things to do when I came home from break 
would be to go running with Buckley. Now, I am not a runner. As, uh, yes, it's true, I own it, it's all good. As uh, Fraser Crane once said about himself, I'm built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> but we had, this, we had this special running leash that you, that you do with the dog. You put it around your waist, and then you attach it to the dog, and it's got just a little bit of bungee in it, right? And so I'd strap on my little sneakers, and uh, I would go out and be like, let's go Buckley, and it would be like, Right, and be like, just all this energy just pulling me apart. Be like, this is the best way to run ever. <laughs> and let me tell you what: when you were running with Buckley, you were forgetting what was behind. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You were not looking to the right or to the left. You were looking at Buckley, and you were running, and you were having fun because your little legs were going faster than you could make them go by yourselves. And you would come up the driveway after the run and be like, whoo! That was fantastic. And my friends would be like, how far did you go? And I'd be like, I have no idea. <laughs> but it was great. Because Buckley would be like, <laughs> right? Buckley would like come back and be like, can we go again? Like, are we good? <laughs> who's next? Who, who's got next? Right? And it was just the most amazing experience for, for this little swimmer person, you know, to be able to be running like that. When Paul has this image of, I belong to Christ, some other translation says, Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. That's the idea. It's not that you are straining forward with sweat and mucus out of your own effort, but Christ Jesus has lassoed you around the middle and he is pulling you forward and he is saying, let's go. Let's go run on this epic adventure. He talks, Paul does, in this book about how he will take our bodies of humiliation and transform them. That's because he is a runner who's already been down this path. He's already run this race. The deepest heartaches we endure, he's already been there. The losses that we grieve, he understands. Where have you come from, says the person at the border, and where are you going? Paul says, where you have come from is death, and where you are going is life. Where you have come from is brokenness, and where you are going is healing. Where you have come from is distrust and cynicism and worry and sleeplessness, and where you are going is rest. I do not think that I have achieved this, says Paul. But one thing I do, one thing I do, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. He has taken hold of you. And he wants to run with you on an excellent, epic adventure. And you got to forget what's behind. 
because all the stuff you're doing to try to earn your way into God's good graces has got to be left behind. And all the things that make you think you are disqualified from running this race have to be left behind because the only thing that makes you qualified to run this race is Jesus Christ, the one who's already won it, and he takes hold of you. You belong to him. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, does two things. He assures me of eternal life. And he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. In Philippians 3, Paul says, Christ does two things. He assures you of eternal life. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your lowly body will be transformed. He assures you of this. And then he makes you wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him, to run the epic adventure. And we do not do this by ourselves. You do not do this by yourself. I do not do this by myself. Because just as we are harnessed by the one who has taken hold of us, just as we belong to Jesus Christ, so we belong to each other. And when one of us falls, the other one hastens to help her get up. And when one of us is hurting, the others of us gather around and cry and pray. And when one of us is celebrating, we have a party. The letter of Paul to the church in Philippians is a communal letter. It's about building community. It's about building a church. And so you're going to have times when it doesn't feel like home anymore and it's going to feel like you've outgrown it and you're going to have to stretch in order to reach out to somebody who is not like you. But what we know is this. Worship shapes us. The community shapes us. And the feast of God shapes us. You are not running this race alone. You are not running this race alone. You have been taken hold of by Christ, and you are surrounded by your brothers and sisters who love you. 